Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. Oh, boy, Michelle. It's a big episode. It's big. Like, one of the biggest, I think. Yeah. Not only are we covering Halter Skelter, which is huge. Obviously, it's the Manson murders. But it is our one-year Murder and Merlot anniversary. Yay! I just like actually got goosebumps when you said that. (laughs) It's so crazy. I can't even comprehend it. How is this possible? I don't even understand how it's been a year since we started recording. It feels like a million years ago, but also like no time has passed whatsoever. Right. It's crazy. Because when we recorded our first episode... We were in your parents' shop, mm-hmm. and we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Clearly. And then, what? <laughs> Two weeks later, the world shut down, and we had to yep. like figure this all out on like Zoom. So exactly, we only had two in-person recording sessions, and mm-hmm. ever since, Zoom has been our friend, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, yeah. Sure, we're, <laughs> we're making it work, but yeah. I know that our audio quality is better than the first time around. So that's something. 100%. 100%. If you stuck with us this long, thank you for getting through those first few. (laughs) If you're listening to this first and then planning on going back, just just heads up. We're sorry. We're sorry. We know it's bad. (laughs) I call it the potato era because I like to say that we are potatoes in a microwave, but it's fine. (laughs) It's amazing. I love it. The content's good just got to get through the audio and absolutely it's fine but yeah super exciting so happy one year anniversary michelle happy one year anniversary cheers (laughs) crazy crazy can't even believe it okay well before we jump into the madness that is helter skelter uh let's talk about our fluff and stuff responses from our last big episode Yes, that was my last episode that I did. So mm-hmm. BTK part two. And the question was, what TV character is most like you? Mm-hmm. I want to change my answer, I think, because I've been watching Parks and Rec. And I want to say that I'm April Ludgate because I just love oh my her God. humor. It just kills me. <laughs> I also just started watching Parks and Rec. And yeah. I agree. You I are. Know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that it. fits you perfectly. Yes. So final answer, April. She even likes vet men. Know, so it's great. That's awesome. Not that I think she actually pursues it at all, but she's interested. And I just I love her so much. So that's my final that's- answer. Um, as for my favorite responses from you guys, Colin on Facebook said, definitely Phil Dumphy from Modern Family. Bad dad jokes, extremely awkward, loves my family. And always gets the job done, which we know him. It's very, we love him. It's yes, 100%. Very, couldn't pick a better person for exactly. him to be his TV persona. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Great choice. And uh, my pick was Garth on Facebook. He said, Odie from Garfield, I'm pretty dumb, but when I'm needed, I get the job done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love it, um, especially because he's. We used to own Dash Hounds and Bessie and I knew each other since kindergarten and Mm -hmm. he had a Dash Hound in kindergarten and 
it just really fitting. Yes. But I did text him after he sent this and I was like, actually, Odie is mm. good. Mm-hmm. However, he is very much hiccup from How to Train Your Dragon. Mm. You know, haven't watched it, heard great things. <laughs> you I know. I know. I know it's a kid movie. But I love them. They're amazing. But Hiccup mm-hmm. is kind of awkward. Um, he's kind of weird, but he's so freaking dedicated. He's so kind and he's so loyal. And I've, every time Aww. I watch it, I'm like, he reminds me of my besties. So that's so you sweet. might be Odie. You might also be Hiccup. Either way, can't lose. Right? It's not bad. Not bad at all. And since, you know, this is our one year anniversary, shout out to Garth Bestie because he was our very first fan. He's been supporting us this entire time and we are so thankful for that. 100%. He was our very first email. He, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. he's got our back. Yeah. One day I will actually be able to introduce the two of you. One day. In like in the flesh. An outside social gathering of some kind. Right. I would like to think. One day. One day. <laughs> in 25 years, we might get there. Right? <laughs> yes. And while we're at it, thank you to everybody else as well. Again, I just, I still, I can't comprehend that it's been a year. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. And thanks to all the new listeners as well, because... Feel like we're getting some some new peeps coming in. So yeah. This is your like first it. episode, then welcome. And I hope you're super psyched for this story. Cause I am. Cause I'm so psyched. I am too. I'm so excited. I'm terrified, I mean, but I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. Let's do it. All right, friends. Grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Tink, tink. Oh man, I knew this day would come. (laughs) After all, we had discussed it in our very first episode that Helter Skelter made a huge impact on us and started our love for true crime. Not only has Helter Skelter been one of my favorite books for as long as I can remember, but the Manson murders will likely always be my very favorite case. It only felt right that on our one-year podcasting anniversary, we brought out the big guns and covered this story. Now, obviously, I also love our timing oh. of it, how it worked out so perfectly. I don't think we planned it to actually wind up on our one year anniversary. We kind of hoped that we would cover this case around our one year anniversary. But for it to land episode one on our one year anniversary is just like divine intervention, I guess. There's some cosmic shit going on here and <laughs> I love it. It must yes. be a good sign. <laughs> yes. So obviously I'm (laughs) incredibly excited to gush about all the details, but I am also so freaking terrified and overwhelmed by the thought of having to piece all of the important aspects of this case together in my own words and make them make sense. Most of all, though, I have to do this case justice, which goddamn, that sounds intimidating. Well, yeah. Oh my God. So bear with me. And join us as we embark on this wild journey together. Oh, wait, wait, don't start yet. (gasps) Flower crown. Flower crown. Ah, I was going to wear it. Like how I immediately knew. I could tell. It also has a a veil attached. Wow. (laughs) Wow. You should leave it on. Fancy. That looks more Hawaiian than California desert, but. Well, it's still a crown made out of flowers. You're right. I love it. I love it. Mm -hmm. You know what? I bet I can find a big old flower right here. Hold on. Mm -hmm. 
Here we go. Where can I put this? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Stick that. I'll even let you right screenshot there. my face and post it on Instagram oh, if you want. Perfect. Shall we do it now? <laughs> yeah, do it. Let me do this on this phone. Bear with me. This is ridiculous. Um, I love it. Let's let's do. Okay, now I look awkward. I gotta That's get fine. my flower in there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> perfect. I got two, just in case. Okay. Love it. Perfect. We both have flowers in our hair. It's perfect. We're getting our hippie shit on. Let's do it. <laughs> so, of course, this series is inspired by the book Helter Skelter. The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. As per usual, we will deep dive into the case and tell you all the important details. After that, we will do a separate book club episode to discuss the book itself. So read along if you'd like, or if you have already read the book in the past, make sure to join the conversation and send us your thoughts. We will include your answers in our book club episode. All right. Are you ready for this, Michelle? I'm so freaking ready. I think I've asked you that about five times now. <laughs> it's all good. I like wine is in hand, flower mm. crown is in place. Even though I'm rocking the Carol Baskins vibe with the uh, leopard print sweater and the flower crown, wow. it's fine. Wow. You are. Yeah. I did yeah. not notice that, but you I just are. saw it and I was like, oh dear. <laughs> Holy. Love the vibe. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. I <laughs> uh, love it. Amazing. The vibes tonight are great. <laughs> Let's talk about murder. Let's talk about murder. Saturday, August 9th, 1969, Winifred Chapman made her way to 10,050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles, where she worked as a housekeeper. She was upset with LA's bus system. It was past 8 a.m. and she was going to be late for work. Fortunately, though, she was able to get a ride from a man she once worked with, and he took her almost all the way to the gate. 10,050 Cielo was quite secluded. It was on a narrow street that winds upward from Benedict Canyon Road in a neighborhood that borders Beverly Hills. The road comes to a dead end at a high gate, which is the entrance for 10,050 residents. From the gate to the main house was over 100 feet, and you were unable to see the luxury home from the road. The nearest neighbor from the gate was about 100 yards away. So when Mrs. Chapman arrived that morning and noticed what looked like a telephone wire hanging from over the gate, it made her worried. She thought perhaps that the electricity would not be working because of the wire, but she pressed the button to open the gate and it swung right open. So she continued up the driveway. She passed an unfamiliar vehicle, a white rambler, but it was fairly common for guests to stay overnight, so she didn't investigate it any further and didn't think much of it. She went around to the back entrance, and after using the hidden key to let herself in the main house, she immediately checked the phone and the line was dead. Continuing on through the house, moving from the dining room towards the living room, she was looking for someone to notify about the phones, until she came across two large blue luggage trunks, which were clearly out of place. Not only had they been moved since the previous afternoon, but they were right in the way. She noticed that there appeared to be blood on the trunks. As her eyes moved around the room, she started to notice blood in more areas, on the floor, some towels in the entryway, and into the living room. She couldn't see the entire living room from where she stood, but every bit she could see was covered in blood. She also noticed that the front door was slightly open, so she looked outside. There, too, were pools of blood on the porch, and then farther back on the lawn, she saw a body. Oh, I just get chills just thinking of her walking in there and being like, this is fine. It's a normal day at work, but 
Oh, dang. Just a minor inconvenience, you know, telephone wire that should be looked at. And oh my God, there's blood everywhere. Blood everywhere. Everywhere. I literally got chills. Mrs. Chapman started screaming. She turned around and left the house the same way she came in and proceeded back down the driveway. Only this time, she passed the unfamiliar car on the opposite side as before. In doing so, she was now able to see that there too was a body in the vehicle. In complete hysterics, she ran to the nearest neighbor's house for help and pounded on the door, screaming, murder, death, bodies, blood. And I don't know about you, but I never want to wake up to the sound of someone at my front door hysterically screaming, murder, death, bodies, blood. Yeah, no. Like, oh, mm -mm. Nope. Not, not okay. Mm -mm. First thing in the morning, middle of the day, at night, I don't want to hear that. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Not okay. Just putting that out there. That would be yeah. awful. Oh my God. Yeah. The family came to the door, and as the parents tried to calm the woman down, their 15-year-old son, Jim, called the police emergency number and noted that the time was 8.33 a.m. Good job, Jim. Yep. <laughs> the young teen had actually ended up calling the police three times before anyone had shown up, and the only reason that the time he noted is somewhat significant is because that the official police report states that the first radio call made to an officer on patrol wasn't until 9.14 a.m. The three officers that had arrived first that day had all testified very different arrival times as well. This is just the beginning of contradicting statements and confusion within the Los Angeles Police Department that we will see in this case. It's ridiculous. It, I feel like it's a pretty common theme in a lot of as cases. Many, like, as many times as we talk about the LAPD, it's like, really? You yeah. could have done better. Exactly. And I also thought it was quite comical that the statement of a 15-year-old boy was more credible than three LAPD officers. Right. They're like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to believe that guy. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like he's got his shit together. We'll go with his, his version. Yes. <laughs> Regardless, when the first officers finally arrived, they began interviewing Mrs. Chapman. This was not easy, however, as she was still completely distraught and only providing vague details such as blood, bodies, every place. Out of the conversation, though, they were able to gather three names of possible residents or visitors. They were Polanski, Altabelli, and Frankowski. The neighbors who had called the police were able to fill in some of the details about the people who had lived next door. The house was owned by Rudy Altabelli though he was in Europe, so he had hired a caretaker to live in the guesthouse while he was away. The young man's name was William Gerritsen. The main residence had been rented out to movie director Roman Polanski and his wife, movie actress Sharon Tate. They too had gone to Europe. Roman was still there. His wife, however, returned less than a month ago. With Sharon, two friends had been staying in the home as well, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski. And I just want to say, I love Vorichek's name. Like, I think that's the coolest name. And <laughs> I often get names or words stuck in my head. And that's one of them that is that's one of them always replaying in my head. <laughs> Frykowski is just kind of so fun to say. Yeah. Yeah. Vorichek, I've never heard it before. And I think it's, it's lovely, but I just, I don't right? know. I love the just Polish name. <laughs> it's flows smoothly. I like yes. it. <laughs> yes. And the other one that's always in my head is Aisha Gyarfis, which. Right. It's so strange, but it's from Waco, and I don't it's know why that, that happens. But It's one that pops into my head, too. It's so strange. 
the officer tried to find out from Mrs. Chapman if any of the bodies she had seen were any of the people mentioned, but she was unsure. She was able to offer one more name, though, and that was Jay Sebring, a famous men's hairstylist, as she recalled seeing his black Porsche parked next to the garage. After preparing themselves with as much information as they could, it was time that the officer took a look at the scene for himself. He grabbed a rifle from his squad car and then had Mrs. Chapman show him how to open the gate. Officer DeRosa started with the white rambler in the driveway. He looked through the open car window and confirmed that there was indeed a body inside. Slumped over in the driver's seat was a young Caucasian man, probably in his teens. His plaid shirt and denim jeans were drenched in blood. Another officer arrived at that point and was informed that there had been a possible homicide. You think? No, uh, <laughs> not at all. No, mannequins. Something bad happened here, but it... We don't know. It's corn syrup. It's fine. Right. <laughs> a very elaborate prank. So he grabbed his shotgun and joined the other officer as they checked the rest of the vehicles, but they were all empty. A third officer arrived, and once they had all reached the end of the parking area, they could see the body that was on the lawn. And then they saw another. From the book Helter Skelter, quote, from a distance, they looked like mannequins that had been dipped in red paint, then tossed haphazardly on the grass, end quote. They seemed so out of place in the beautifully landscaped yard beside a luxurious home with a view of downtown Los Angeles all the way to the ocean. The stillness was becoming disturbing. The first body that they approached was about 20 feet from the front door of the main entrance. It was a lot to take in. Male, Caucasian, probably in his 30s, laying on his side and clutching the grass. His head and face were severely beaten and his torso and limbs had dozens of puncture wounds. Again from Helter Skelter, quote, it seemed inconceivable that so much savagery could be inflicted on one human being, end quote. Oh, chills, man. Chills. Moving on to the next figure, about 25 feet away, sprawled out on the lawn, the officers noted that the body was female, Caucasian, had long dark hair, and was probably in her late 20s. She was wearing a full-length nightgown, and even though the officers couldn't tell what color it was, they assumed that before the many stab wounds, it was probably white. Ooh. Rough. <laughs> Very rough. Really paints a picture. Two officers began to make their way into the main entrance. Not wanting to use the front door in case the perpetrator had been waiting inside, they looked for other ways to enter. They noticed that a screen with a slash in it had been removed on one of the front windows and was leaning against the house. They figured that was likely how the killers had gotten inside. So they continued looking around for another entrance point so they wouldn't disturb the scene. Eventually, they found an open window to an empty room and climbed inside. DeRosa was still outside, and once he knew the house was clear, he began examining the front porch. There were patches of blood all around, but most intriguing was what appeared to be on the slightly open door. Written in blood were the letters P-I-G. Meeting up with the other officers inside the home, he noticed a pair of horn-rimmed glasses on the floor, near the large trunks that had been blocking the hallway. One of the other officers, Burbridge, had been following behind, and he too noticed something on the floor. Two small pieces of wood, which appeared to be pieces of broken gun grip. Searching for any clues as to what happened in the home that resulted in the three deaths, they moved on to the living room. In the center of the room was a long couch that had a large American flag draped over the back. It looked out of place, but it was not nearly as shocking as what they were about to see. You guessed it, more death. Yep, it's gruesome. 
quote, she was young, blonde, very pregnant. She lay on her left side directly in front of the couch with her legs tucked up towards her stomach in a fetal position. She wore a flowered bra and matching bikini panties, but the pattern was almost indistinguishable because of the blood, which looked as if it had been smeared over her entire body. A white nylon rope was looped around her neck twice, one end extending over a rafter in the ceiling, the other leading across the floor to still another body, that of a man, which was about four feet away, end quote. <sighs> we Yikes. hate that. Mm-hmm. Just like with the female, the rope was also looped around the man's neck twice. His face was covered by a bloody towel. He was laying on his right side, and he still had his hands bunched up near his head, as if he was still fending off his attacker. Like the rest, his clothes were too drenched in blood. Just an awful, awful, gruesome mess. Yeah, it's terrible. Keep in mind, the officers that are currently on the scene are patrolmen, not homicide detectives. Probably not the way they thought their Saturday was going to start. Yeah, not a good good start to your day. No. Mm-mm. Literally anything would be better than this. Yeah, it's not. Mm. Mm-mm. Poor guys. <laughs> yep. They completed their walk through the rest of the house. Some areas had spots of blood and signs of struggle, and other areas were left completely untouched. They stepped outside near the pool, and from there they could faintly see the guest house on the property through the shrubbery. The buildings were about 60 feet apart, and once they got closer, they could hear a dog barking inside and a man's voice saying, shh, be quiet. And I bet you the officers were shitting their pants at that point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because there had been nobody else alive on the property so far, so who was that? Guns drawn, they surrounded the place. De Rosa peered into the window and could see a young man, about 18, sitting on the couch. He kicked in the door and told them to freeze. The boy was startled, especially when he saw three guns pointing directly at him. Altabelli's large Weimariner, Christopher, charged Officer Weisenhunt, chomping the end of his shotgun. The officer pinned the dog's head in the door until it was called off. And that's a good dog, just saying. If a strange, man, if a strange man barged into my house, Hank better be on that shit. And Weimariners are crazy. They so. are wild. I love them. Crazy. They are like... Beautiful psychotic but psychotic alien dogs like i don't know they just have such a vibe (laughs) yeah i love it the young man was william garretson the caretaker altobelli hired while he was away obviously considering he was the only living person on the property that had been turned into a slaughterhouse he was promptly handcuffed and taken outside garretson was confused by the entire situation and kept asking what was going on so the officers figured they would show him He was led to the bodies on the lawn. First, he identified the woman as the maid, Mrs. Chapman, which right off the bat we know is not accurate. Nope. The man he identified as the young Polanski. Of course, we know that Roman was still in Europe, so it couldn't have been him, but the officers would later find out that Gerritsen believed Wojciech Frykowski was his younger brother. When asked to identify the man in the car, he was not able to do so. He was then informed he was being placed under arrest for murder. Meanwhile, the guest house was being searched by Wisenhunt, who was looking for weapons or anything with blood on it, but nothing of the sort was recovered. One detail that he did notice that will later come into play was that the stereo next to the couch had its volume set between 4 and 5. 
When questioned, Gerritsen insisted that he was completely unaware of the massacre that took place within 100 feet of his house. He explained that he had been up all night listening to records and writing letters. While escorting the suspect off the property, DeRosa located the gate control mechanism, and even though he noticed that there was blood on it, he pressed it anyways, and the gate swung <sighs> wide open. <laughs> hate that part. Yep. It makes me so mad. And later, when he was asked about that decision, he simply said that he needed to get out of there. But come on. <laughs> like, there's things you could have done. There's blood. There's a fingerprint. Let's just get rid of that fingerprint. <laughs> Come on. It's like in Finding Nemo. You didn't <laughs> <Yes>. touch the butt. <laughs> Don't touch the butt. You touch the butt. <laughs> it was 9.40 a.m. when DeRosa called in the report of five murders and that they had a suspect in custody. Before all of the West Los Angeles detectives were on scene, the first reporters were already at the gate. Immediately, there was wild speculation coming from the media. Because of the hot and dry temperatures, it was first assumed that the deaths were due to fires in the hills, but really, it was just the rumors that were spreading like wildfire. Mm -hmm. Someone must have mentioned Jay Sebring on the radio because a reporter phoned his butler to ask about the deaths by fire. Of course, the butler did not know anything, so he called the president of Sebring International to tell him about the call. The president was concerned, as he hadn't heard from Jay since the previous previous afternoon, so he called Sharon Tate's mother. Mrs. Tate tried calling Sharon, but there was no answer. Oh, that horrible game of phone tag and right. like not getting answers from the people that are you're most worried about. Exactly. Oh, nightmare fuel. Yep. And for a bit of background, before Rowan Plansky and Sharon Tate were married, she had lived with Jay Sebring. They remained friends afterwards, and he was also close to her parents. This now platonic relationship would later add fuel to the rumored mill. Meanwhile, at 10,050 Cielo Drive, more and more reporters and police officers were arriving. It was a circus both outside the gate as well as inside the home. With all these so-called detectives tromping around, the crime scene started to change. The horn-rimmed glasses that had been noticed on the floor near the travel trunks had now been moved six feet away and were placed on top of a desk. <laughs> The pieces of the gun grip that had originally been near the entryway were now under a chair in the living room, and another piece was later found on the front porch. And man, I remember the first time I read about those details in Helter Skelter, and I was furious. Like, 13-year-old me knew better than those LAPD officers. Like, don't touch the evidence. Like, come there's, on, people. There's so many times in this book that I'm, like, infuriated by the actions of law enforcement, and it's so frustrating and especially this whole situation because i feel like those officers weren't there to help with the crime scene they were just there to to look at it because it was interesting yeah. like they weren't actually conducting any police business in my opinion they were just messing up the crime scene it's yep, so ridiculous same. the officers also did a great job of walking through the blood and tracking it around the home and onto the porch this, of course, added more work to the investigation as the killers, too, left bloody footprints. But now they had to determine what came from the suspects and what came from the police. Also, while the blood was being tracked all around, the poor forensic chemist, Joe Granado, with the Scientific Investigation Division of the LAPD, was trying to take samples from anywhere that appeared to have blood. And that was already a huge job, but this certainly did not help. 
In the end, there was so much blood that Granado ended up overlooking many areas. Also, many of the samples that were taken had not been subtyped either. So later on, it was incredibly difficult to recreate how the attack took place because they didn't know what blood spots belonged to who. So that's like just super helpful. Perfection right there. Yes. And so with subtypes, you have to do it like within a week or two, I believe, or else Mm -hmm. you aren't able to do it anymore. So it's not like, oh, we still have the samples, you know, months later, we can go back and test. No, you can't. They No, blood only lasts so long. Yeah. Roman Polanski's business manager, William Tennant, was brought to the scene in order to hopefully identify the bodies. First, he was brought to the White Rambler, and he too was unable to identify the person inside. Next were the bodies on the lawn. The man was ID'd as Wojciech Frykowski, and the woman was Abigail Folger. In the living room, there was Sharon Tate and possibly Jay Sebring, but the victim's face was so badly beaten that he couldn't be certain. The scene made Tennant sick to his stomach. He hurried outside and threw up. Later that day, once he made it home, Tennant had to make the difficult phone call to Roman Polanski. Upon telling him Sharon, Jay, Gibby, and Wojciech were all dead, Roman, crying, insisted that it must be a mistake. Or, perhaps, if it was caused by a landslide, they might still be alive. Tennant explained that he had gone to the house himself, and they had each been murdered. Ugh, my heart kills me. Yeah, and he was in Europe. I think he was in London at the time. Right? So far away. And can you imagine that trip back to Los Angeles? No. Traveling usually is hell, but that is, that would be a whole nother level. Yeah. Not okay. No. Twelve hours after the bodies had been discovered, the young man in the Rambler was still unidentified. You might be thinking to yourself, like I did, why didn't they just check the registration on the car? (laughs) Well, there was apparently too much happening at the crime scene, and they had so many things to do that no one looked into it. Of course not. Why would they do that? Right? Because it's just more interesting to look at the crazy crime scene inside the house than, you know identify a dead body you know somebody that people are dead body you know parents are waiting for them to come home but no you're just ogling over this crazy crime scene (laughs) i'm not bitter or anything (laughs) no we're not (laughs) no i don't said i don't have strong feelings about this case no (laughs) however from the outside of the gate at 10,050 cielo drive it would be possible to figure out the license plate number so that is what one reporter did After running a check through the Department of Motor Vehicles, he found out that the car had been registered to Wilfred E. or Juanita D. Parent, and it gave their address. So, naturally, the reporter made the 25-mile trip to their home to see what he could figure out. Thank goodness there was no one home. Like, yeah, that's not how you should find out. No. No, no, Ever. no. No. So, he went on to question the neighbors instead. They informed the reporter that the family did have a boy in his teens, and they also shared the name of the family priest, Father Robert Byrne, of the Church of Nativity. And man, even though I think this reporter is a slimy jerk, he really got shit done, because he was actually able to not only contact the priest, but was able to get the man to accompany him to the morgue. Like, you know, just a casual road trip. Yeah, this is fine. Let's go down to the morgue. Normal paparazzi things, right? You don't know me. I don't know you, but let's go to the morgue. Please come look at a dead body with me. Right? <laughs> what else are you going to do on a Sunday? 
right? It's not like you got a church to talk to or exactly. Whatever. It's fine. (laughs) It's totally not related. (laughs) It's their day off, actually. Priests, you know. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Totally. (laughs) Meanwhile, the LAPD were finally able to identify the body through a plate check and a print. Like shocking. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) They should have done that as soon as I saw the body, but whatever. They too visited the home in El Monte, California, where the parent family had lived. Fortunately, this time, Wilfred and Juanita were home and no reporter had gotten to them first. However, the LAPD didn't exactly handle the situation in the most eloquent way either. They simply handed the couple a card with a number on it, told them to call, and left. So they made the call and it was answered, County Coroner's Office, which, oh man. I rage. Like, I, I can't even imagine that sinking feeling that they felt hearing those words. And like, why wouldn't the LAPD say anything? Exactly. Isn't that your job? Like, like give them a you heads have up. Come police on. Police officers show up at your door and be like, call this number. Peace out. I've and never then heard the that. Coroner's before. office? No, it's not okay. That is not okay. I've never heard that before. Why no. did that happen? I don't know. They were transferred to the deputy coroner who told them, your son has apparently been involved in a shooting. Wilfred asked if he was dead and the coroner responded, we have a body down here and we believe it's your son. Ugh. Ugh, chills. They, of course, were hysterical. Around the same time as he took the call, Father Byrne made the identification. It was indeed 18-year-old Stephen Earl Parent. So sad. Mm Mm-hmm. So now the obvious question is, why was Stephen at 10,050 Cielo Drive? And I'm sorry, I feel like I've said that address 10,000 times. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, it's part of the story. Like, I don't know, anytime you hear the story, it's just like, like I, I know that address. I've always known this address. <laughs> I feel like the address is much of a character in the story as Sharon Tate and as yeah. Wojtek Rykowski. Like they're all, it's all part of it. And yeah, 10,050 Cielo <laughs> Drive is just another. It's just such a like well-known player in the story. Yeah. Place. Okay, good. I'm not the only one that feels that way. <laughs> Stephen was just a regular teenager, not a movie star or anything. So. Why was he there? Well, even though the caretaker, William Gerritsen, did not recognize him in the car, Stephen had visited him on the night of August 9th, around 11.45 p.m. They didn't actually know each other all that well, though. Gerritsen had hitched a ride home from Parent a few weeks prior. He mentioned that if he was ever in the neighborhood, he was welcome to stop by. So that's what he did. Gerritsen was a bit surprised. He didn't think Parent would actually come by, but he let him in anyways. The visit wasn't too long, however, as Stephen had a clock radio for sale, but Gerritsen wasn't interested in buying it, so the young man left the house, not knowing that he was not going to make it very far. It's one of like the weird details of the story that just always like sticks out to me because mm-hmm. I'm such an introvert. Like the thought of I know just showing up at somebody's house that I don't even know to be like, hey, you want to buy this clock radio? 100%. And especially in this type of neighborhood that was like luxury homes and movie stars, the gate was like huge and intimidating. The driveway was so long and the guest house was like way far past the main residence. So you would have to walk through this entire property in order to get there. Yeah, I know. 
it sticks out to me every time I've read this book. I'm just, yeah. like, I just could not do that. So it doesn't even make sense to me. I've always felt that way too. I have like this weird anxiety about going to people's houses. Like what if it's the wrong house? Even if I've been there right. 10 times, I'm like, what if this is the wrong house? And, right. or and what I if have I like so much anxiety. Show up unannounced and they're freaking doing it or something. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? It's just not something that you do, at least nowadays. I know it's a very different time back then. Totally. Very different. It was in the 60s, but still, it just blows my mind. There's a few houses that I know I could show up at any time. No anxiety, nothing, no warning. But at any other time, like, Mm -mm. no, you call it like text first. Always. Text first. Make sure it's okay. Maybe even text me when arrive. Like, let me know when you're on your way. Like, that would be great. (laughs) Exactly. That would be chill. Yeah. And let me just say, please do not show up at my house unannounced. I am so not okay with that, especially because (laughs) I live in the country and that has never been a thing before because, you know, it takes a long time to get to my house. So there's a long, a lot of time to be like, hey, on my way, like, do not show up at my house. Coming over. Yeah, I I will hide. I will not answer my door if anybody (laughs) knocks. I've had bad experiences in the past. (laughs) Right. Totally. Anyways. Anyways. (laughs) Anyways. Um, Just a quick note here about why William wasn't able to identify Stephen in the car. Right at that time, he had noticed Mrs. Chapman standing at the gate talking to an officer. And as mentioned previously, he had identified one of the bodies on the lawn as the housekeeper. So I think it's pretty safe to say he was a bit shooketh. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. He was like, uh, that, that person's dead over there. No, I she's just not. said she was what? dead. Yeah. Like, is she a ghost? What? Right. So, yeah, I, I think anybody would be uh, in shock at that point. So that's likely mm-hmm. why he wasn't able to identify the person that he knew. Mm-hmm. When Stephen didn't arrive home the next day, his parents were distraught. He didn't call, and that was very out of character for him. Wilfred and Juanita and their three children ended up going out for supper as they were too upset to cook. They hoped their son would be home when they got back. And this is where they had been when the reporter had come to the house, which I believe is a bit of a blessing that they were out and they did not have to hear it from him. And I hate it that they were out for supper. Yeah. Right? The 911 call came in at what? 9am yeah, yeah yeah well yeah the report from de rosa was like 9 40 a.m i think and so yep. not until supper time right when they could have just looked at his registration on his car and yep. contacted his parents right but instead all day they were worried sick yeah. yeah i hate that yeah this poor family it breaks my heart um a quote from helter skelter reads quote it was 5 a.m before the parents went to bed The wife and I finally just put the kids to bed with us, and the five of us just held on to each other and cried until we went to sleep, end quote. And like, excuse me while I go cry myself to sleep as well, because- Yeah, I'll just be crying in my wine. That's not okay. No, no. I hate it it too. I'm just going to drink now. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing else to say. I'm just going to drink. It's just, yeah, it's just so heartbreaking because there was- no reason that he should have been there. Like it was just no. a one-off thing. Like, hey, I'm gonna stop by this dude's house, but ah, oh, it breaks my heart. Anyways, maybe that's why I have anxiety and I would never go anywhere because maybe. I read this book when I was way too young. True. <laughs> maybe that has contributed to our anxiety. Hmm. 
Who would have thought? Right. So going back to the crime scene, some of the officers that had been inside the home were now speaking to the media. One described the murders had looked ritualistic. Like, great, here you go, media, have some gasoline to add to that inferno of rumors. Like, so bad. Thanks for that. On top of that, it certainly didn't help that a gram of cocaine and 6.3 grams of marijuana plus a two-inch blunt was found in Sebring's Porsche. Right away, it was being reported that the murders were a result of someone freaking out at a drug party. Other stories said it was a drug deal gone wrong, burglary gone wrong, or it was a deaths by hire situation. So bad. So bad. And like, I don't think anybody's freaked out on pot like that. Yeah, like... Just saying. (laughs) 6.3 grams of pot is not that much. No, I mean... Cocaine, it's, that's different, but like, it's I think marijuana was like the, the biggest thing here. Like yeah. The most that they found around the home. And it's just yeah. like, eh, I and don't know about like, that. <laughs> it's like legal everywhere now. Like yeah. I, I don't even know what you can have in your house, but I feel like 6.3 grams wouldn't be that much. Yeah. I have no concept, however. <laughs> I don't know whatsoever. Yeah, I can't whatsoever. <laughs> yes, but I, I feel the same way. An example of just one of many headlines seen in Los Angeles later that afternoon read, Film star, four others dead in blood orgy, Sharon Tate victim in ritual murders. Like, come on, guys. Ridiculous. And what exactly are the, like, classifications of a blood orgy? Yes, exactly. Can you give me a definition? I need to know more. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I do, but I don't. don't really want to know actually (laughs) please nobody email us (laughs) don't tell me (laughs) i think we can you know put it together enough (laughs) also i hate the fact that this headline was probably like printed and posted everywhere before the parent family knew about their son i know yeah of course the police were trying to keep tight lips at least about some of the details obviously not all of them were you know doing that but A lot of them were trying. So this led to reporters making up their own details because that's journalism. Journalism. That is a hard word. It is a very hard word. Journalism. Journalism. (laughs) You know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Fake news, man. That's reporting. (laughs) That's media. Yeah, that's media. We'll go with that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Some speculation that was reported as fact included Gerritsen had confessed to the killings, Sharon's unborn baby had been cut from her womb, her breasts had been slashed off, the victims were sexually mutilated, and the towel over Sebring's head was, of course, either a white KKK hood or a black Satanist hood. And again, just... Naturally. Of course, because why wouldn't it be? And just to be clear... All of those details were incredibly false, just in case you, you zoned out for a second when I said that <laughs> <laughs> they were speculation. <laughs> but in support of the media's claims, Sebring was also known around Hollywood for being a ladies' man, and he was also into the BDSM type affairs. There were many reports of him enjoying tying up women and whipping them before having sex, so obviously this just supported the outlandish theories. And I'll just say, as I have said many times before, that's cool. You do you, let your freak flag fly. But now in the back of my mind is freaking Dennis Rader. 
Like, damn I know Dennis. he ruins everything. Like I, I never had a problem with that, but now it's just like, oh, that that gross dude. Yeah, why you gotta be in my head? Except these sound like consensual sexual relationships, and that's the difference. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Also, I just want to note, <laughs> sounds like Sebring was a bad apple out of these people. That's what at least a lot of people are saying. Um, really, he wasn't. But um, Abigail and Wojciech also were known to dabble in drugs as well. Mm-hmm. But it's not that big of a deal, unlike what the media wanted to portray. Yeah. According to one of Sharon's friends, the plan for their evening on August 9th was just a simple night in. No big party or blood orgy. Just Sharon and her roommates, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski, and Jay Sebring would be stopping by for a bit as well. Sharon's friend Sandy declined the invitation as she had chickenpox. And I'm sure there has never been anyone more grateful for having chickenpox in the history of mankind. No kidding. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, man, I might have a couple pox scars from scratching my face, but you know, yeah. I'm alive. So you life know, is good. It probably wasn't great because, you know, she was an adult and <laughs> it'd be worse at that point. Oh, awful. I would choose that option over the slaughterhouse any day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And everybody, every time I've read it, you almost forget that Sharon Tate is like 8,000 years pregnant. I mean, she was yeah. eight months pregnant, but yes, at that point, at she point. would have felt like she was 8,000 years pregnant. Yeah. And you don't want to party no. at 8,000 years pregnant. No. I and this, I've been there. It's not fun. This idea of this big drug party, like she wasn't into that anyways. Roman sweared up and down. She was not into drugs at any point. And he said that being pregnant was the most important thing in the world to her and she yeah. wanted to care for her baby she was not going to mess around with that no. so it's ridiculous she just wanted to like hang out with her friends and not be lonely because her yeah. husband is overseas and you know her baby could show up at any point exactly and you know strength in numbers you would feel a lot more safe being in a house with other people in it especially a house that freaking big exactly and also, in my opinion, <laughs> kind of what I was just saying, but I think these types of brutal murders happening to a group of friends during a regular night night at home is so much more frightening than some crazy party gone wrong. Like that yeah. means it could happen to anyone on any night in the comfort of their own homes. And that exactly. freaks me out. <laughs> well, I think that was part of the point, right? So. Well, yeah, exactly. But the media is like you know trying to add fuel to the fire like it was this crazy blood orgy like all these drugs and stuff but it's like but really the reality is more terrifying mm -hmm. a lot of angelinos felt this way as well including celebrities and all other residents in the area lino and rosemary labianca were of those that were frightened by the news they were returning home from a trip to lake isabella when they heard about the murders that had happened the previous night on the radio their daughter Susan had been with them in the car and remembers her mother being particularly disturbed by the news and added that over the past few weeks, she had thought someone had been coming into their home while they had been away. Ugh. Yeah. No thanks. After dropping off Susan around 1 a.m., the couple made a quick stop at a newsstand. Lino had chatted with the owner about the tape murders as it was the talk of the town. The man remembered Rosemary being very shaken up about the murders and he gave them a copy of the Los Angeles Times that included the story without charge. There would have been no way to know at the time, 
but that was likely the last time anyone had ever seen the couple alive again, besides their killers. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> did you just check behind you? <laughs> yeah, I did. It's like... <laughs> Scary. I got goosebumps and, yeah, you know. I hung up a giant blanket fart, fort. <laughs> giant blanket fort. Mm-hmm to block some sound from my stairway and I'm not yes. used to seeing something in the corner of my eye. Yeah, that's, that's a little so. freaky. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Let's do this again. <laughs> Sunday, August 10th, 1969. Susan's brother, Kevin, returned home from the lake trip. He had stayed an extra day with a friend and had been dropped off at 3301 Waverly Drive, Las Feliz, at about 8.30 p.m., while walking up the long driveway, the 15-year-old noticed things seemed out of place. The speedboat Lino pulled home the day before was still on the trailer, which was something that was never usually left out overnight. When he reached the back door, he noticed that all the window blinds had been pulled down, which, again, he's never seen that before either. Feeling uneasy, he knocked on the door to be let in, but nobody came. He called out, but nobody responded. Quite concerned now, he left the residence to find a payphone. First, he tried calling the house, but again, after no response, he called his sister Susan. She then called her boyfriend Joe, and they came right over and picked up Frank at about 9.30. They found Rosemary's spare key for the house that she had kept inside her car and opened the back door. And quick note, no one had actually tried opening the door without the keys, so there's no way of knowing if the door was actually locked or not. Once inside, Susan stayed in the kitchen while Joe and Frank looked through the house. When they entered the living room, they saw Lino. And it was not a pretty sight. He was sprawled out on his back with a cord around his neck and a pillow on his face. His shirt had been torn open and there had been some type of object protruding from his bare stomach. Oh, brutal. Brutal. Not wanting Susan to see, Joe hurried everyone out of the house, saying, everything is okay, let's get out of here. But Susan had a feeling everything was not okay, as she had seen writing on the fridge in something that looked like red paint. And it's never red paint. Nope, just like it's never a mannequin, it's never red paint. Exactly. Which is funny because the detectives at the Tate House said that the bodies looked like mannequins dipped in red paint thrown on yeah. the lawn. Mm-hmm. Never that Nope, it, nope never, ever. that's not it. <laughs> Let me tell you. Except for that one time on the morning news, then right. that was a mannequin. <laughs> well, it was a blow-up doll. Okay. <laughs> not really a mannequin. True. But still. True, but you know, on the same kind of line. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. No red paint, though. They ran across the street to a neighbor's house for help. They had been too distraught to make the call, so the neighbor made the call for them at about 10.35. Minutes later, the officers arrived and Joe accompanied them to the La Bianca's home. Officer Rodriguez went to the front door of the house and it was unlocked. After one look inside, he ran to his car, called for backup, and for an ambulance. They arrived right away, and not surprisingly, 44-year-old Lino was pronounced DOA, dead on arrival. Upon closer examination of the body, they found that along with the pillow, there was actually a bloody pillowcase pulled over his head, and the cord around his neck was connected to a very large lamp. It had been knotted extremely tightly, and his hands had been tied behind his back with the leather thong. As for the object protruding from his stomach, it was, quote, an ivory-handled, bi-tined carving fork. 
in addition to the number of stab wounds in the abdomen, someone had carved the letters war in the naked flesh. End quote. Oh, it gives me chills. Ugh, me too. Me too, man. Phew, sorry. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Just snuck up on me out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> gives you chills and the sneezes. <laughs> and the sneezes. <laughs> it's a roller coaster. I think that's the first time I've ever sneezed on the podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Congratulations. <laughs> my husband my husband has sneezed like a hundred oh, times. Probably. But... Yep. yep. Well, that's my first one. <laughs> Why is that so funny? I don't know. <sighs> the two paramedics were on their way out when Officer Rodriguez called out that there was another body. In the master bedroom, 38-year-old Rosemary was lying face down on the floor in a pool of blood. Her dress and nightgown she had on was bunched over her head, exposing her back, butt, and legs. She too had a pillowcase over her head and a lamp cord tied around her neck. There had been too many stab wounds to count. As mentioned before, there had been writing on the refrigerator, but it was in blood, not paint. And it was not the only writing found in the home. High up on the living room wall read, Death to Pigs. To the left of the front door was the word rise. And what Susan noticed on the refrigerator door was the misspelled phrase Helter Skelter, which we all know, of course, was an attempt at writing Helter Skelter. But spelling wasn't their forte. And no. that's okay. <laughs> that's I fine. Guess. I was going to say no judgment, but you know what? No, lots of judgment on that's these people. Judgment. All of the judgment. All of the judgment. <laughs> we actually judge Raider pretty hard on his. Spelling that's true grammar so, so yeah i guess I, i'm also judging you yes we we must be fair <laughs> you people who we are not naming yet yes that's right the case was assigned over to robbery homicide which included some of the officers that had been at the tate residence the night before there had not been any signs of struggle in the house and no burglary either although the couple may not have been movie stars they were pretty well off Lena was the president of a Los Angeles supermarket chain, and Rosemary owned her own successful dress shop, the Boutique Carriage. In the home, detectives easily located all kinds of jewelry with gold and diamonds, as well as handguns, shotguns, rifles, valuable coin collections, credit cards, cash, watches, the list goes on. So obviously, if robbery was the motive, a lot of these items would have been stolen. The only items that were determined to be missing were Rosemary's wallet and her wristwatch. Once again, Granado from SID came to the scene to take blood samples. And this time, he didn't bother to take any subtypes at all. So that was an interesting decision. Yeah, that's nice. Like, were you too exhausted from the crime scene beforehand? Because I know you were there for hours and hours and hours. Like, maybe somebody else should have been brought in if that yeah. was too big of a, you know, too much work for you. Yeah, back-to-back murders, I imagine, would be hard. But still, like, still, just... If if you're not up do to your it, job. just do your job. Exactly. Either do your job or get somebody to fill in for you because that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Also, the Animal Regulation Department arrived in order to remove the three family dogs that had been found inside the home. And that detail doesn't have any significance to the investigation. I just felt really sad for those doggos. Also, super happy that the doggos were okay. True. Yes. It's just sad that they had to see their owners like that. And it breaks my heart. I know. I know. I don't, I can't think about that. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about all kinds of brutal murders, but can't talk about the tacos being sad. (laughs) 
No sad dogs allowed. No, except for, you know, on our last morning news, but it's yeah. okay. Well. <laughs> A quote from Helter Skelter about the two murder scenes and investigations. Quote, Los Angeles, California. Consecutive nights, multiple murders, victims, affluent Caucasians, multiple stab wounds, incredible savagery, absence of a conventional motive, no evidence of ransacking or robbery, ropes around the neck of two tape victims, cords around the neck of both LaBiancas, and the bloody printing. Yet, within 24 hours, the police would decide that there was no connection between the two sets of murders. I, I hate it so much. I could I could see and feel the rage building <laughs> in you while I read that. <laughs> I hate it. Makes me so mad. They're not similar at all. And especially all. considering like some of the same detectives were on both scenes. Yeah. That's but, insane. But no. No. Why would they, you think that these would be connected? Right? <gasps> yeah. Mad. So basically right away they just figured that these were copycat murders. Because that's a day later, the like... most logical explanation here, right? So, if people weren't freaking out before, they certainly were now. At least after the Tate murders, the police had a suspect in custody. But the second night of slaughter happened while William Gerritsen had been locked up. That means either he didn't commit the first ones at all, or if he had, there are more killers on the loose. This fear actually made it more difficult for police to locate people to question because everyone was in hiding, moving, or beefing up their security. Some other interesting facts, one sports store in Beverly Hills was selling, on average, three to four guns per day. In two days following the Tate-LaBianca murders, they sold 200. And with that, reports of accidental shootings and suspicious persons reports went way up. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be reporting everybody. <laughs> and 200 people who've never yes. bought a gun before. So how safe are they? Accidental shootings. Right? Exactly. I guarantee you that they do not have any knowledge on gun safety, which is very no. important. Very. Both Gerritsen and Roman Polanski have been questioned and given polygraph examinations. Not surprisingly, they both passed. Obviously, Roman was not in the country at the time, so he could not have committed the murders himself, but some had thought that he was involved, especially since Sharon and Jay had previously been together. Maybe there was still something going on there. Roman knew there wasn't, however, and he wanted to clear the air. The examiner was satisfied that he had no involvement or hidden knowledge of any of the murders. Things were looking up for Gerritsen as well, as the police were able to determine that if he was inside the guest house, he would not have been able to hear the gunshots or the screaming on the night of August 9th. They did this by recreating the conditions as best as possible and using a general level sound meter to detect any noise. From the piece of broken grip found at the scene, investigators could tell that the gun used was a high standard 22 Longhorn revolver, which was a pretty unique gun. So by using a similar 22 revolver and setting the stereo volume to between four and five, they played out the events of that night, and no noise was picked up. However, even though these findings clearly indicated that Gerritsen wouldn't have heard anything, there were many LAPD officers that still thought otherwise. And I mean, I don't discredit them for that, mm -hmm. because it is weird. You're mm -hmm. on the same property, all of these people are dead. How, like, yeah. How do you not see something? How do you not hear something? Right. Like, when you say you were awake the whole time. Yeah. Very true. It is Very weird, true. but 
the guest house is set way back on the property, right? So. It is. Yes. Yeah. And uh, actually really interesting. Well, during his polygraph examination, they asked if he was responsible for the murders. He did say he felt responsible for Stephen's death, but that's obviously because he wouldn't have been there without right. knowing William. So they cleared that up. Um, but then the other thing was he said that he felt um, scared that night. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, what made you feel scared? And he said that he had seen that his door handle on the door had been turned, I think. So mm. it just gave him a eerie feeling. Totally. And my other thought is they live in LA, like they live in like the hills of LA. Like how often do you hear mm -hmm. noise from the city? How often do you hear right. a woman screaming? How often, like, I imagine it's probably mm -hmm. more often than you'd think. Right. Yeah. So oh, probably it's and not necessarily that foreign that you wouldn't think anything of it. Yes. Very true. And in the book, they explain that the hills kind of play tricks on on the sound and something might be completely audible from like miles away. But yet you could be quite close to the area and you won't mm -hmm. hear anything. So it's really interesting. Actually, some people did call in to say that they heard screaming or mm -hmm. gunshots that night. But Nobody really followed up on it. Yeah. Yeah. LAPD. Woohoo. <laughs> Fortunately, though, the young man was, was eventually released. Unfortunately, the LAPD did not have any other leads at the time. There, for a while, they thought the killers may have stolen Sharon's red Ferrari and used it as a getaway car, but it was later found at a garage getting repairs. With how chaotic and messy these crime scenes were, you would think that the killers would have left some evidence behind. And there was some, but it was pretty slim. They were able to lift some fingerprints, however. Not including the ones belonging to LAPD officers, because, you know, they can't just not touch things. <laughs> so much rage. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> we, we won't get over it, so don't tell us to get over it. <laughs> they recovered 50 lifts. Of those, seven were Garretsons. All of them were in the guest house, not in the main house. 15 belonged to victims, three couldn't be read, so this left 25 unmatched prints. So that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Then there were, of course, the glasses and the pieces of gun grip. Detectives also took portions of the rope used around the necks of Sharon and Sebring in order to determine where it had been made and sold. Also found at the crime scene near Sharon's body was a Buck brand pocket knife that had been wedged behind a cushion on a chair. Unfortunately, the prints on the knife were smudged, but officers hoped that it would help in the investigation anyways. At the LaBianca home, there were 25 prints found, but only six could be read. They had all belonged to Lino, Rosemary, or Frank. However, many of the areas that should have had prints, such as the refrigerator door, the chrome handle, or the carving fork, did not. This likely meant that the place had been wiped down after the murders. And then there were the autopsies. Hold on to your butts, because these details are brutal. It's not okay. They're rough. <laughs> mm -hmm. Originally, someone had suggested the stab wounds had been inflicted with a bayonet, which is just absurd, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I mean, we are not in Civil War times at nope. this point, so... I mean, I do have a bayonet, but... <laughs> you do I, I do but it's just 
it's just on the thing. Like it doesn't do anything. Like it's stupid. This is a stupid idea. And I feel like it would be really awkward to stab somebody with a bayonet. Especially with this much brutality and this many times over and over again, it does not, just does not make sense. No. (laughs) But um, that theory was ruled out pretty quickly for multiple reasons. So that's good. The depth of the wounds exceeded five inches and the width of the knife used was between one and one half inches, which was much bigger than the dimensions of the pocket knife found at the residence. So for Sharon Marie Tate, 26, the cause of death was multiple stab wounds of the chest and back, which penetrated the heart, lungs, and liver, causing massive hemorrhaging. She had been stabbed a total of 16 times. Five of those would have been fatal on their own. J. Sebring, 35, the cause of death was ensanguination. <laughs> yes, I looked up how to say that. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite true crime words. Is it? <laughs> it is. And I don't know why, I just like it. Yeah. Exsanguination. Exsanguination, mm-hmm. which obviously means that he bled to death. Just mm-hmm. kidding, I didn't actually know what that word meant. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have heard it multiple times, but never mm-hmm. stuck. Mm-hmm. He had been stabbed seven times and shot once. Three of the stab wounds and the gunshot were fatal injuries. Abigail Ann Folger, 25, had been stabbed 28 times. Wojciech Frykowski, 32, got the most savage attack at the Tate house. He was shot twice, struck in the head 13 times with the blunt object, and stabbed 51 times. My God. Ugh. Ugh. Stephen Earl Parent, 18, had one defensive stab wound and was shot four times. Rosemary LaBianca, 38, I'm sorry, just keeps going. (laughs) Yeah. Rosemary LaBianca, 38, the cause of death was multiple stab wounds. She had been stabbed a total of 41 times. Six of those would have been fatal. Many of her wounds were to her back and buttocks. Lino A. LaBianca, 44, the cause of death again, was multiple stab wounds. Another rough one here. He had been stabbed 12 times with a knife and had 14 puncture wounds made by the double-tined fork. Out of the 26 wounds, six would have been fatal on their own. Since he had a pillowcase over his head, no one knew that he also had a knife protruding from his neck until the autopsy was performed. So rough. Ugh. Ugh. The brutality in these murders is just insane. And these autopsy findings in Helter Skelter have always stuck with me from the very first time I read the book. I know. Me too. When I think about this case, that's what I think about. Mm -hmm. Just when you thought we were probably done, part one, there's actually one more murder that we need to discuss. Mm -hmm. During the autopsies, two homicide detectives approach one of the LAPD officers assigned to the Tate case. They had stumbled onto something very interesting that should be looked into further. On July 31st, they were called out to 964 Old Topanga Road in Malibu to investigate a murder. Inside was a body of a 34-year-old music teacher named Gary Hinman. He too had died from multiple stab wounds, and even more compelling was a message written in blood on the living room wall. It read, Political Piggy. The scene was too similar to the others to not be connected. In this case, however, a really good suspect had been arrested. Robert Bobby Beausoleil, known as a young hippie musician, 
had been caught driving Hinman's car, with blood on his clothes and a knife had been hidden in the vehicle. He was arrested on August 6th, which of course was a few days before the other murders had taken place. But it was possible that he wasn't the only one involved in the Hinman death. He had actually been living with a group of people at an old movie ranch known as Spawn's Ranch. It... <laughs> I'm getting chills. <laughs> I'm just like smiling. I'm I know. Like... <laughs> I'm way too happy right now to be talking about murder. Weird. Yeah. It seemed like an unusual living situation for sure. The detectives explained that they were a bunch of hippies with a leader apparently named Charlie who had convinced his followers that he was Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the moment hippies were mentioned, the Tate detectives lost interest, saying, nah, we know what's behind these murders. They're part of a big dope transaction. And that was the end of the conversation. These leads could have broken the case wide open within 24 hours of the Tate victims being discovered. But instead, it would be months before there was any progress in the right direction again. That's so frustrating. I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, that, that just infuriates me. One more interesting note to end on. The August 17th, 1969 Los Angeles Times paper included the following stories. Anatomy of a Mass Murder in Hollywood, which of course is referring to the Tate murders. To the right of that, was LaBianca couple, victims of Slayer, given final rights. And on the far left of the very same page as these other articles reads, Police Raid Ranch arrest 26 suspects in auto theft ring. And if you didn't connect the dots, let me help you out here. That ranch where the raid took place is the same ranch Bobby Beausoleil had been living before his arrest. And I'm not much of a spiritual person here, but the universe was tying these stories together. And we will dive deeper into the connections here in the next episode, because this is where I will end it for today. You did it! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! Yeah, that blows my mind, though. That newspaper yeah. article, I looked it up. You can Google it and find it. It is I have. creepy. It is so eerie. I love it. And it, yeah, it's one of those details from this book. There's a lot of details in this oh. book that just stick out to me. Yeah. But this is one of those ones that it's like, it's like right there, it's right there. in black and white for you. Literally. Like, <laughs> maybe just read it. Maybe read. just look at it. What's in front of you? Yes. You know, have an open mind. Like, don't just immediately shut everything down. Like, nope, not connected. Not connected. Right. Like, come on. It's insane. Again. Do your job. Simple. Simple. It's not that hard. That's all, that's all we ask. Obviously, my source today was Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. And I know that whole part, that sounded like it was right from the book. I tried very hard to um, write my story differently. And I think I've just read this book so many times now that it just kept coming out exactly the same. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I must change it. So, uh, I mean. You know the story. It doesn't change. So exactly, the stories don't change. the The details don't change. There were, however, a lot of details that I wanted to add, but there, you just can't. You got to draw a line somewhere, right? Exactly. And we we can talk about other things as we go forward. So exactly. And if you want all of the details, then obviously go read the book. Like 
it's insane. It's, it's so well written. Like Vince Bugliosi is kind of funny as well. And you're just like, and I don't know what, what it is about him that I find funny. He's just like, he's matter of fact. And he's like, but at the same time, Mm-hmm. There's all of these fuck ups that they do. Yeah. And he's kind of so, like, look at the humor in, in this fuck up. You have yeah. to. I yeah. mean, it's like this awful, horrible case, but it's how he tells it. It flows beautifully. Mm-hmm. He ties everything together so well, and there's no loose ends at the end of the story. So, exactly. So, yeah. if you haven't, definitely go just read that book. <laughs> it may take right? a while because it is a very long book, but we would 100% recommend it. <laughs> yes. And then, read it again and again and again, because every time I read it, I find I'm connected to different details. Yes. So hundred percent. Yeah. And then after you read it, you can join us for our book club because we will talk about the book further, obviously, and we will have a lot to say about it. So hopefully you guys will join us for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And yes, in the Next part, we will be getting to know the killers, a certain family, and a tiny man with a really big ego. Oh, I'm the tiny psyched. man. The teeny tiny man. Oh, yes. He's so small. I know. It's <laughs> and just ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited. Um, not going to put it out there that it's going to be done next week because I got to edit this and it's going to take a long time. Yeah. But- and... Morning newses are fine and they're fun. Yep. And so expect a morning news next week and then we will hit part two the week after that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And are you thinking you're going to do this in three parts, maybe four? At least three parts. We will see how yeah. it goes. But this book is really trial heavy because yes. obviously he's the prosecutor. So he knows a lot about the trial. So yes. I have to wean it down quite a lot. So we'll we'll see how it goes. I'm not and certain the yet. Trial is a complete circus. So hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Yeah. It's just come along on the ride with us because it's fun. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, you want some fluff and stuff? I do. After Excellent. all of those autopsy reports, I need something fluffy. I know. Such a good way to end a story is here's yeah. all the autopsy reports. Yeah. Okay. Well, today's question is, have you ever been told you look like someone famous? If so, who was it? Um, well, currently, uh, Carol Baskins. Yes. hundred percent. Not intentionally. <laughs> um, but yes, I used to get told that I looked like Avril Lavigne a lot. Really? Yeah, I had like huge Avril vibes in high school. Mm-hmm. You know what? I have seen some old pictures of you and yeah, I, like, yeah, actually I could see that. Yeah. Punk rock princess. Oh, yeah. yeah. Straight, Straight hair. hair. Yeah. I just wasn't wearing the tie, but you know, I was, I tried to pull off the tie, but that was more Green Day related because, you know, yes. that was the era of American Idiot and they were all about the red ties. Well, yeah. So I tried <laughs> and I, failed. And I had a t-shirt from, it wasn't Hot Topic, but it was a very similar store. And it was, you know, the tie on the t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't actually, totally. you know what I mean. You I know, know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Classic punk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember in high school I had like, cause I was in high school in like the early 2000s. So I had like the baby tee, you know, my belly button would hang out like yeah. short sleeves and it had one of my favorite ones anyways, had like little turtles across the front. And then I would wear like bright yellow, like baggy fleece, like flannel pants. Like wow. 
that's yeah. a look. That is it was a look. look. Yeah. I I'm happy it. that I didn't go to high school in the age of social media. I'm very grateful for that. Oh my God. I, <laughs> I literally think that just about every day of my life, like, thank God there were not yeah. cameras, pictures, videos, TikTok. Like I would have ruined my future with TikTok if we oh had God, that I know. when I was a child mm. or a yeah. teenager or whatever. When I had and I had a big like baggy hoodie that had like a flaming happy face on it. And I oh, classic. loved that. Yeah. So like I had like the Avril hair, like flaming hoodie. Yeah. It was. Oh yeah. Yeah. Skater shoes. Yeah. Oh yeah. The skater shoes that are 10,000 times too big for anybody and yeah. skinny jeans on top of that. That's what at least what I yeah. wore. Yeah. Avril vibes, man. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you? I, I'm so curious. Now. <laughs> well, not to toot my own horn, but beep, beep. People have said that I look like Mila Kunis, which is so not true, but I will you accept know, that. <laughs> I can kind of see it. <laughs> if your hair was shorter, totally. I, I love her. I think she's amazing. So I will 100% accept that. But I mean, I see it a little bit, but not not fully. <laughs> yeah. But she's a badass. Did you know that she actually is from Russia? Like she moved to this, like Los Angeles when she was like 11. No way. Yeah. And then she she's was amazing. Like, started in that 70s show when she was what, 15? Yeah. Like really young. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And she had to like learn the language and like all the things when she came over. Crazy. I love her. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Anyways. Yeah. That's fun. That is fun. (laughs) Well, make sure to answer our question as well. If you've been told you look like somebody famous, who do you look like? We want to know. And let us know what you think about the episode. You can email us at murdermerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at murdermerlotpodcast, Facebook at murdermerlotpodcast, and Twitter at murdermerlot1. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed, and if you don't, you're dead to me. All right. And yeah, we'll just continue reading Helter Skelter. And it's going to. I'm not, gonna I'm not ready to reveal what our next book is. So. Yes. We have it planned we have out. It chosen. But, but we're going to hold of us off. started to read it. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we're going to be sticking around with the Helter Skelter theme for, for a while here. So yeah. Get cozy. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right, guys. Remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.